The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon and welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, broadcasting from the Cromer Mashburn Family Studios at Public Radio WMKV 89.3 in Redding, Ohio and WLHS 89.9 in Westchester. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and Real Life Real Estate is your public radio source for information and inspiration to start or grow your own real estate investing business. This week is question and answer week on real life real estate. And this is a little bit of an unusual question and answer week because we are pre-recorded this week because uh, I had to be out of town and couldn't actually be in the Cromer Mashburn studios. And yet I know how y'all love your questions and answers. I want to thank all the folks who helped me out this week by sending in questions to askvina.com. Uh, in advance of the program. Uh, if you have questions or is listening to the show, questions come up for you, you can always log into that website, askvina.com, and uh, send any questions that you like through the Q&A form at the bottom of the page. And usually, if you log on to askvina.com, there is some sort of um audio, ebook, something that we are offering to real life real estate listeners as well. So you might want to go check that out, whether or not you have an actual question. That's askvina, A-S-K-V, like in Victor, E-N-A dot com. Our first question today comes from Chris in Northern Ohio. She says, I have a tenant that has furnace problems, that has had a furnace problem about once a month for the last three months. Every time the furnace goes out, there is a there are continuous calls at any hour expecting the phone to be answered. Then there are nasty voicemails because the phone is not answered at any hour. Just to clarify, there are times when I don't answer the phone because I'm in a meeting and I certainly don't answer it after 9 p.m. Is it acceptable to have office hours between 9 and 5? The issues are always addressed first thing the following day. I don't want these people to be cold, but from the voicemails, one would think that I had personally gone to their home and blown out the pilot light. Well, Chris, there's a there's always this tension, isn't there, between rental property owners and their customers, the tenants, and sometimes setting expectations in advance goes a long way. If it is your policy that you do not answer your phone after nine o'clock at night, you don't answer your maintenance line or your tenant line or whatever whatever it is that you're using, uh, folks should probably know that at the time of the lease signing and maybe you could remind them of it when they uh, get their rental invoices every month. 
At the same time, it's not a terrible idea to have some sort of an emergency number because if it's, you know, 9, 10 at night and it's the middle of the winter and my furnace has gone out and I'm a tenant, I'm going to feel much better about the world if somebody answers the phone. Now, it's not likely, of course, that if, if I call it 9, 10 at night, it's going to be possible to get a service person out there, but at least someone has heard me. So is there a way perhaps that you could have your phone forwarded to an answering service after nine o'clock at night so that at least they're getting some answer from somebody and they feel like, you know, their, their issue has at least been heard. Um, I have had tenants like the ones I think you are describing, which are the folks who sort of think that, you know, it it is reasonable for them to become angry at you over not getting an immediate answer or an immediate call back on what probably seems to them to be an emergency situation. And uh, generally with those folks, we try and have a sit down with them and say, look, you know, here is the process by which you make maintenance requests. If I don't answer the phone, it's not because I'm ignoring you. It's because I cannot always answer my phone. The policy says we don't answer the phone after nine o'clock. And if there's a, you know, true, like the house is on fire sort of emergency, here's how you get a hold of somebody. Uh, But otherwise, you know, please respect the fact that I have a life as well. Now, the other thing that I would say, though, is why has this tenant had a furnace problem once a month for three months? This sounds like something that should be taken care of on a more permanent basis. Did these angry phone calls start with the very first issue with the furnace or are they getting angry because it keeps happening over and over and over again thank you very much for your email chris good luck with that set some expectations going forward with both your existing tenants and your current tenants think about a way that they can actually get to talk to a human being after nine o'clock and get that furnace fixed a question from anthony in denora pennsylvania He says, I keep hearing a lot of hype about short sale investing is dead. What is your take on that market? P.S. I'm thankful that Real Life Real Estate is on the air every week. Well, thank you for that, Anthony. Um, So short sales, like every other type of strategy in real estate, tend to go in cycles. And in the case, in the particular case of short sales, The cycles are as much driven by government interference in the finance and housing market as they are by supply and demand of short sales. It has become the case over the past few years that uh, the, the, the government incentivizes or disincentivizes banks to do short sales or not do short sales as opposed to their other options of foreclosures, deed in lieu, deeds in lieu, etc. It has also become the case over the last few years that the process by which a short sale is negotiated has been more and more pushed away from the borrower themselves or from an investor like yourself who might want to buy that property and is, is going in and negotiating with a bank as a buyer and more and more into the realm of real estate agents. Uh, Most banks these days won't consider a short sale unless the property has been listed on the open market by a real estate agent. Many of them have gone to a short sale offer system 
that is online and practically requires that it's an agent that puts in the offer. It has also been my experience and the experience of most of the folks that I have spoken to, again, over the last few years, that banks are accepting fewer and fewer short sale offers that are investor type offers. In other words, that would be in that sort of 70% of after repaired value, less repair costs range, and uh, will preferentially foreclose on a property rather than accept an offer that low. Now, Part of the reason for that, I'm certain, is that they're they're they are dealing with many, many, many fewer foreclosures than they were at the height, or if you would rather call it the depth, of the foreclosure crisis. And the market is stronger, so there's more people looking to buy those properties, so they don't need to let them go as cheaply. But it's still happening that you know you make an offer on a property that's in a short sale situation and it's for X dollars and it's rejected. And then next thing you know, the, you're uh, uh, seeing it go through foreclosure and come back on the market at less than what you offered for it a year earlier after another year's worth of back taxes and expenses by the bank and so on. So th- let me say there's, there's no such thing as quote short sale investing. Short sale is not an investment strategy. Short sale is a deal acquisition strategy And as a deal acquisition strategy, I would have to say that I am pretty negative on it at the moment. I will not do short sales. I am am a licensed agent, and so I could get involved with that part of the process. I choose not to because of the complications and the uh, uh, lack of likelihood that an offer will be accepted in a price range that I'm likely to want to pay. And that's after, you know, six months, eight months of negotiating. And... Uh, Most of the people that I know that are making big money in short sales right now are agents. Now, some of them are also investors. Some of them take on a lot of short sales, negotiate all of them down to the lowest price they can get. If the price is low enough, they buy it themselves. If it is not low enough, they simply sell it to a homeowner occupant or something at, you know, 85, 90% of the market value and the owner occupant's happy and they get a commission. So I would have to say I am... I am negative on short sales myself. Uh, If you happen to be listening to a podcast of this in 2020, I may not feel that way anymore because it is cyclical. They were a great business, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, almost non-existent 15 years ago, not so great now, maybe great in the future. But for right now, to me, they are too much trouble for too little likelihood of success. Thank you so much for your question, Anthony. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on this special pre-recorded question and answer week. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. If you're listening to Real Life Real Estate through our podcast, remember that you can also listen and participate live on Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Eastern at WMKV 89.3 FM or WLHS 89.9 FM in the greater Cincinnati area. Or you can listen to the show live streaming anywhere in the world, 5 p.m. Eastern time every Wednesday at WMKVFM.org. It's question and answer week. Uh, This is a special pre-recorded question and answer week where folks sent in their questions via our website at askvina.com. 
A question here from Dave, who does not say where he is from. Uh, Dave says, what seems to work best for direct mail campaigns, web squeeze pages, or call capturing services? So let me let me try to translate what I think you're asking there, Dave. I think what you're asking is, will you get a higher response rate from a piece of mail if you direct the respondent to go to a web page where they are going to fill out the details about their property? Or if you direct them to a phone number where someone asks them the same questions. I think I'm assuming that's what you mean by a call capturing service. And the answer is uh, kind of a, a, a matter of debate out in the real estate community. My own split testing of creating a particular piece of mail, whether that be postcard letter or whatever, and giving people the option of either going to a website or making a phone call or giving them both options in the same piece of mail is that my response rate is higher if I only give them a phone number. Now, let me tell you what I think the reason behind that is. If you come home from work or shopping or whatever it is you've been doing and you reach into your mailbox and you pull out a letter and you open up the letter and it says, I'd like to buy your house and you can contact me thusly. The thing that everyone probably has on them is their cell phone, right? Their cell phone may very well have an internet connection where they could go to that website right now and start filling out your form. But have you ever tried to type on your cell phone reams of data about this is my address and this is what my house needs and this is my name and here's how you get a hold of me and here's what I owe and here's whether or not I'm behind on my payment. You're not going to do that, right? You're going you're gonna to take it inside and you're going to sit in front of your computer and do this where there's a nice big screen and a full-size keyboard. Only what's really going to happen is you are going to go inside and you are going to put that letter down while you make dinner, while you round up the kids, play with the dog, whatever the case may be, intending to later on go back and fill out that form on the website. So on the other hand, if it's a phone number, right, you've got the phone right there, you you can call the phone number and call the phone number and you give the same information. The other reason that I think that uh, the the call capturing service, as you're calling it, is a better uh, option and, and, and gets better response, gets a higher response rate, is because um, how how much information do you really want to give a website about your personal situation? Like, here here's my house, here's how much I owe on it, here's whether or not I'm behind on my payments... If the squeeze page is only asking, like, what's your name, where's the property, and what do you want for it, that's that's a different situation maybe. But I think a lot of people get part of the way into those more complex forms and say, I'm not going to... I'm not going to tell him how, I don't even know who this is. I don't know if this is a secure website. I'm not telling anybody how much I owe on my house. And so they stop in the web form and you never get the result that you're looking for. So... 
again, my experience has been between the choices of here's a website or here's a phone number or here's a website and a phone number. The phone number alone works best. Now, there's there's a dozen people that I could bring in here to the studio with me that would argue with me and say that they've had different results than I have. And I think there's a lot of little things about this that we're missing. You know, how, how complicated is the form? How attractive is the website? Uh, does the does the, the website give people trust in you? Do, are they getting to the website and, and saying, well, I don't even see what it is these people do. I'm, I'm moving on versus, oh, there's a lot of explanation here about who these people are and what they do. So I'm going to go ahead and fill this, fill out this form. You know, I think there's probably a lot of moving parts to that. But my experience is from a piece of mail, give them a phone number. Now, obviously, if your marketing was online marketing, if you were using Google ads, if if people had stumbled upon your website some other way, uh, you want to let them know what the phone number is in case they do want to call, but they're going to naturally be they're in front of their computer already, right? Wherever, whatever, whatever they're seeing, they are already on a device that allows them to see it. So in that case, give them a web form, but also please give them a phone number. I see so many people that uh, they give no way of contacting them on their website other than just fill out this form. And if if folks, you know, are, are hesitant to fill out the form because they're thinking, wow, I don't really know if he wants a house as junky as my house, then you're not going to get what you want, which is a qualified lead because they want to pick up the phone and call you and ask you that question. And so many people just do not put their contact phone numbers on websites, which in my mind is a mistake. So thank you for your, uh, your uh, email, David. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. Uh, we've had a bunch of questions sent in via our website at askvina.com. You can do that as well to be answered on a future program a question from fred and again not quite sure where fred is from he says recently my partner and i have had our quote all cash offers rejected sellers want more than it makes sense for us to offer on an all cash basis i have seen information on the web about wholesaling lease options also known as cooperative lease options it is claimed that they allow you to sensibly offer more for a property is wholesaling lease options, in your opinion, a good idea? What are the pros and cons of wholesaling lease options? What, uh, in what circumstances, if any, would you wholesale a lease option? Well, let me let me take this question one paragraph at a time, Fred, and say, number one, do you understand why it is that your all cash offers are being rejected? The answer is lower inventory and higher competition. And this is particularly the case with properties that are listed in the MLS. Properties that are listed in the MLS are not usually your best bet for the rest of your question, which is wholesaling lease, which is lease options that you can wholesale, which is a different uh, question. If you are, as I suspect from the rest of your question, looking to wholesale these properties, I would ask you whether when you say sellers want more than it makes sense for us to offer on an all cash basis, whether you are really considering what that means. Are you really considering the fact that 
if you are doing the math that you've always done for your entire wholesaling career, and you come up with a number that is $100,000 as the right purchase price because you figure the house will maybe be wholesaleable at one ten. Are you cross-checking and seeing whether your buyers, the ones who you think want to pay the one ten, are in fact paying more than that for houses? Because I'm seeing that over and over and over again, where the, the math that I have done since, you know, God was a child for a wholesale deal generates an offer price that is so ridiculously low for what distressed properties in in the area are actually selling for that it's not, there's no chance the offer is going to be accepted. I mean, I'll give you an example from, from last week, I was looking at a property and my generated offer from my formula was about $16,000 and the lowest sale price of any property in that area, including the bank owns, including the ones that say said need work, including the ones that said no FHA, including the ones that were short sales, the lowest sale price in that area in the last six months was $30,000. So I let the market tell me that people were buying distressed properties in that area for more than the strict after repaired value times 0.7 minus repair costs. And that in fact, the low end of what they were willing to pay for distressed properties was around $30,000. So I raised my offer to a uh, price that made more sense for the market, which was twenty-three dollars or $24,000, and uh, did get it under contract. So take, take, take a look at that. Take a, we've always said never, 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 when you're, when you're trying to figure out the value of a property, never look at the distressed sales. But in the market right now, you sort of have to look at the distressed sales, if only for the purpose of putting a floor on what properties are selling for in that neighborhood. Now, that doesn't mean that if the other properties that sold were sort of normal REOs that maybe had the plumbing stripped and had been vacant for a couple of years and were outdated versus your property, which had a fire in it. Okay. I mean, that's a different situation, right? If you're, if your house is like unusually terrible or has structural problems or is unusually, uh, is a weird property for the area, you know, it's the only three-story house built in 1890 in a neighborhood full of 1960s ranches. Forget what I just said, because you got a different sort of problem in figuring out the value of it. Uh, Now, the rest of your question is about wholesaling lease options or what's called cooperative lease options. Um, The question is, is it a good idea? What are the pros and cons? Under uh, what circumstances, if any, would you wholesale a lease option? And that is a question that is much longer than a real life real estate program. So what I'm going to direct you to do is go to our podcast on iTunes. We have several interviews over the course of the last uh, really couple of years from practitioners of that strategy. Ron Legrand was one. uh, Joe McCall was one. I think Wendy Patton was on uh, talking about those at some point. So just search for those names, Joe McCall, Ron Legrand, Wendy Patton, and they've done entire programs on the pros and cons of wholesaling lease options. But let me say this, the seller who wants the all cash offer and wants more than you want to pay may not be that easy to convert to, well, I'll give you what you want, but I want to rent the house from you. 
I mean, those are, those are often two different kinds of sellers. Cooperative lease options, wholesale lease options, whether they are wholesaled or not, or whether you uh, stay in them as a as a sandwich lease, are usually done on nicer properties than what I think you're talking about in your first paragraph here. They're usually done on properties that are basically able to be moved into that are homeowner type properties that don't need a lot of work. Um, there is a, there is a whole strategy of doing like repair for equity deals, uh, with lease options, but I don't like doing those with lease options. If someone has to do some work on a house, I want them to have more control than they have in a lease option. Uh, but you're usually talking about two different types of properties and two different types of sellers. Sometimes with your more standard wholesale deal, your, your distressed property, you can pay more by offering terms that are acceptable to the seller, but that's usually not going to be on a lease option because if you're wholesaling a property to another investor and they're going to have to put ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars into that property and repairs, they're not going to want to do that if it's a lease. They they want it they want title, which means you have to get title, which means that you have to get something like a uh, an owner finance loan or a subject to or something like that. So um big, big topic. Uh, appreciate your question. Um, again, going to refer you back to our archives if that's cool with you, because man, that's that has been three or four entire shows. Um, we are going to take another quick break. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's Question and Answer Week here on Real Life Real Estate. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I am your host, Vina Jones-Cox. You can stay in touch with Real Life Real Estate on Facebook at facebook.com slash Radio or by joining our email list at askvina.com. Again, most weeks we have some sort of special gifts for listeners in, uh, in the askvina.com website. So Keep checking back with that and make sure that we have your information so that we can remind you of the upcoming programs each week on Real Life Real Estate and you will never miss a week or your opportunity to ask questions of our great guests. This week there is no guests, it's just questions. And uh, I have a question here from Sham in Dayton, Ohio. He says, do you see any signs that conventional lenders are preparing to relax some of the stringent requirements for getting investor loans? Or are we the mercy of private lenders and hard money lenders? That's the one thing keeping my clients from doing more deals. Well, Sham, you know what's really interesting is that if you read the media you read the, 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 the newspapers, websites, etc. All the talk is about how loan requirements are being loosened, right? FHA is making it easier for people to get loans. Fannie Mae is making it easier to people to get loans. But if you talk to mortgage brokers and to real estate agents such as yourself, they will tell you that the in the real world, exactly the opposite is happening, that it is becoming more difficult, not less difficult to qualify for financing and for properties to qualify for financing. Because as investors, we we have both the issue that uh, currently conventional lenders want very high um, down payments, very high credit scores. Of course, you know about the limitation on the number of conventional loans that a 
real estate investor can have. And uh, not only are those things not getting better, we're not seeing them, you know, not seeing Fannie Mae coming out and saying, well, we'll, we'll now buy loans from investors with 680 credit scores. We're, we're, we're seeing some of the little rules that also govern how these things work uh, become tighter and tighter and tighter. Again, government intervention. Um, the, the If banks were allowed to make decisions, particularly about investor loans, we're not, we're not going to get into a whole discussion about what happened in the crazy days of the financing bubble in 2003 and four and five and six. But if they were, if they were able to make intelligent decisions about investor loans, which are a, a different kind of loan, right? They're, they, they should be asset-based. Yes, it's important whether or not the investor can can make the payments on the property, but really the property is supposed to make the property, the payments on the property. I think we would see a lot more investor loans available, although I think they would be at higher interest rates than we're seeing right now because they should be risk-based loans, right? They, the the banks should be able to look at these and say, well, maybe they have a little bit higher level of uh, higher uh, possibility of default because, you know, potentially the investor gets into some sort of trouble and he's going to save his own house before he saves his rental house and he's going to let the rental house go back to the bank before he lets any, you know, any of his own personal stuff go back to the bank. And thus we should get higher interest rates on it. On the other hand, this business of, 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 you know, Fannie Mae wants to buy loans primarily uh, made to people who have jobs is a real problem for full-time investors, right? You know, when you haven't had a job for 20 years and that's, that's, that's a problem in the secondary market, then it's a problem for you. Um, you know, Fannie Mae not wanting to buy loans that have been made to LLCs and what do all of our attorneys and, and CPAs tell us, put your rental property in an LLC. And now we're starting to see a large number of situations where the investor does qualify for the loan. He buys the property. Two months later, he moves it into his LLC because that's what his lawyer told him to do. And, and he gets a letter from his bank saying, move it back out because Fannie Mae's going to call the loan due if you don't move it back out because you violated the due on sale clause. So quick answer is it doesn't look like it's softening up. Now, what is happening is that we still do live in America. And when there is a huge demand like there is for loans on rental properties, and the traditional supply has been largely cut off for most people, which has happened, a private company, right? Private capital is going to move into that arena and they're going to say, you know what? We're going to raise money to do this because we see the demand, we see the profit, and we don't care what Fannie Mae wants to do because they're not buying our loans anyway. And that has begun to happen in about the last 18 months. There are a number of private uh, hedge fund type, private equity fund type companies that have uh, begun aggressively marketing particularly to landlords about uh, for um, fairly high interest rate, you know, seven, seven and a half percent portfolio loans where they don't really care so much about your credit score. These are largely refinance loans. So no down payment is necessary. Yes, they will only loan a certain percentage of the value of the property, but they've stepped in just as one would expect to happen. So 
it is loosening up on the one end of the market on the on the more traditional end of the market i don't see that happening anytime soon because well gosh until they finish writing the rules for dodd frank not that dodd frank officially is supposed to affect us as investors borrowing money um, I don't see the banks moving in any direction on anything other than to make it more difficult, not less difficult to get loans. And don't say the mercy of private lenders and hard money lenders. Private money lender, private lenders and hard money lenders are awesome. They're an easy asset-based source of income. It's private market stuff, right? It's some guy's money in your house and he wants to invest in your house and you want his money. It's all awesome. Capitalism at its best um question and answer week here on real life real estate investing uh really really appreciate all the folks who sent in questions to askvina.com send in questions via askvina.com this one is from audrey she says my question is when evaluating a subject to deal does the after paired value matter at all in the decision to offer cash along with taking over payments the scenario would not be a foreclosure situation but a tired landlord or a homeowner with no equity, any feedback would be much appreciated. So is the question here, Audrey? Okay, let me let me tell you what I think the question is since you're not on the phone or anything and then I'm going to answer the question that I think it is. And if it's not the question, you can send it back to me in a different form later. I think what you're saying is in many cases when one is making any kind of creative offer, whether it's I'd like to take over your payments or I'd like you to finance the property for me or something like that, you make two offers simultaneously because most sellers, when they talk to you, want a cash offer. That's why they called you. They were looking for how much you would pay for cash. And the reality is you can pay more if you can get financing because if you pay cash, you are tying up your cash, or you are tying up your private lender's cash, or you are, uh, you know, paying 8% interest on your cash on the on the on the money that you borrowed. And if they will finance it or let you take over a lower rate loan, the, the, the property just becomes more valuable, because the financing is more valuable. So a lot of people will recommend you make a cash offer and a terms offer, you give them what they want, which is the cash offer, which is likely to be lower than what they can afford to take, as per your question. And then you say, now I can also give you this higher amount of money if we can do some other kind of deal, a takeover payments, a you know lease option, a something where I'm making you payments instead of paying you all cash. I don't like doing terms deals where there's no equity. You asked the question, uh, the scenario would not be a foreclosure situation, which is you, you never want to get into a terms deal with somebody who's in foreclosure because that's going to that's going to blow up on you later. Uh, but a tired landlord or a homeowner with no equity. I know that you have heard that you can pay 100% of what a property is worth if you can get good enough terms. And that is, strictly speaking, true but it is also risky. You always have to be looking at what is my exit strategy? What is the scenario that I think is most likely to play out in regards to my exit strategy? And then what is sort of the worst case scenario in regards to my exit strategy? 
And if you look at the reasonable worst case scenario, most of the time a 100% of value offer is not going to work for you. Even if even if you're taking over a loan with an interest rate of, you know, 3.5 or 4%. And what you're thinking is, well, this is a $150,000 house and the guy has a 3.85% loan on it, so the payment including taxes and insurance is only $980 a month and I know this house will rent for $1400 a month, so I will happily take over his $980 a month payment with by the way 27 years left to run because look, I'll be making almost $500 a month. And the the truth is you are not going to be making $500 a month renting that house. There are maintenance issues, right? And you say, oh, well, if the house is only 10 years old. There's no maintenance issues. Yes, there are. If you've ever had a tenant that never had maintenance issues, I would like to meet you because things go wrong, even in newer houses. And sometimes they go wrong because of something the tenant did. So about 20% of your gross rent on a fully stabilized house is going to go away in maintenance, vacancy, and reserves. You're thinking, but I'm not going to rent it. I'm going to lease option it. Okay, so you just paid $150,000 for a $150,000 house. You're going to lease option it for what? You're going to lease option it for $159. You're going to take $8,000 up front. The tenant buyer gets ready to buy in a year, and you make what? at the back end when he buys it. Zero, because with your closing costs, at the end of the year, he only he owns you 151, you still owe like 149.5, because you took over a 27 year loan, and with your closing costs and so on, you might even end up bringing a little money to closing. What I'm trying to say is, even with favorable financing, you need to capture some equity in the property. I really like to 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 get at least 15% equity even in a really nice property that I have a really strong exit strategy in because I'm always looking at so seriously what is the worst case scenario? Worst case scenario is I lease option the property for 159, the tenant buyer does not buy it and in fact when they move out they leave $3,000 worth of cleaning and damage to do. And now I have a $150,000 house that's only worth 145 because of the $3000 worth of damage and I still owe 149.5. I want 15% equity in a subject to deal even if the property is in good condition. And th- and that's but by the way that's a very reasonable offer to make because if the alternative that the seller has is sell his house for 150 Pay an agent to sell it, pay closing costs when he sells it, pay deed prep, transfer tax, title search, et cetera, et cetera. He's only getting 85%. He's only getting 85% of what he has in it anyway. And and in the scenario I just outlined, he owes 150. So if he's only going to get 85% of 150, he's going to have to bring, what, $20,000, $25,000 to the closing. And, you know, you saying... I can only take over a loan of 135 on this is is uh, completely reasonable. So I hope that was the answer to the correct question there, Audrey. If not, you can send another email to askveen at gmail.com. One last quick question. This one is from David. He says, well, hope it's a quick question. 
Uh, he says, I've heard some investors use the term cap rate. With all the real estate terminology out there, could you explain how a person comes up with that number? Is there a simple formula for it? And what is a good cap rate on a property? Um, so, David, we did an interview not not too terribly long ago, probably summer or fall of 2014, with Anthony Chara discussing cap rates. Might want to check that out on iTunes because he goes through a fairly lengthy description of what these things are. And uh, first of all, cap rates are generally only applied to larger multifamily and commercial properties. You, you, may, see, you may see a turnkey rental seller quoting a cap rate, saying, oh, this thing's got a 16% cap rate. It's not really applicable to that kind of property. In the larger properties, what it refers to is the rate of return including all income and less all expenses except debt service and income taxes. And when you say what is a good cap rate on a, and that's if you paid cash for it, obviously, because there's no debt service in there. When you say what is a good cap rate on a property, it depends on the property. The higher management the property is, the higher the cap rate that you expect. A property, a C, a C property in a C area should have a higher cap rate than an A property in an A area. Um, the more work that you have to do to get it into a condition where it's going to be functioning, the higher the cap rate should be. Uh, different kinds of properties carry different cap rates. A shopping mall is going to have a different one than a than an apartment building, for instance. Now, I think what your question is, is if I'm looking at a 40-family building, how do I know what the cap rate should be for that particular building in that particular area? And the answer is it's a market-derived number. It's basically what did other people pay for the income stream they were getting. And you can get information about that typically from large commercial brokers. Uh, Apartment associations do that sort of um, uh, analysis uh, from time to time. So if you Google cap rate in and put in a zip code, it'll give you at least a range of what, what other people are getting as cap rates on properties that they have recently purchased. But check out that Anthony Chara interview on our podcast on iTunes. And we will be right back. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing in our very special pre-recorded question and answer week where all of the questions have come in via our website at askvina.com. We have a question here from William in Cincinnati. He says, most sellers seem to be fearful of staying in the deal on seller finance. They typically state that they don't want to deal with anything. They just want the house gone. Is there some way to overcome the inertia of the seller Or is it just me? Well, William, I have to say that um, I think it might be a little bit of each. Um, One of the sort of, I don't know, squishy things about this question here is what do you mean when you say seller finance? Because there there are, you know, five or six different ways that sellers can accept payments in return for some level of your control of the property. There are lease options, which we've already addressed, where really what you're doing is renting the property from the seller. He is still the full owner, has to pay the taxes, has to carry the insurance. Um, if, If 
the roof goes bad and you call him and say, you know what, I don't want to lease your house anymore. He has to replace the roof. In that case, the seller really is staying very involved in the property, even if it is in a sort of hands-off way. Even if you're, uh, you know, t- typically in a in a situation like that, you would be subleasing the property in some way. You would be making uh, promises to the seller about uh, managing it and him getting his payment every month from you, whether or not you were getting it, and so on. But in reality, if you decide that you don't want to exercise your option or that you no longer want to lease the property, it does come back to him in whatever form it exists at that time. Then there are other ways of doing things like contracts for deed where you are in fact legally obligated to do the repairs and maintenance and are typically, although not always, obligated to pay the taxes and insurance. And then you get into these forms of seller finance where the seller is actually giving you the deed to the property. Uh, seller carrybacks, like like uh, seller-held mortgages, um, deals where you're buying the property subject to the existing loan. And if you have sellers sort of kicking back on those kinds of deals by saying, I don't want to deal with anything, I would question whether you were thoroughly explaining to the sellers that they are no longer the owner of the property and thus are no longer legally obligated to pay the taxes, do the work. I mean, it it sounds like what they're concerned about is that somehow uh, the furnace is going to go bad and they're going to have to fix it. And in, in the case of one of these seller finance deals, legally, that is your problem. Now, are there still things that could go wrong in this deal? Yeah, the furnace could go bad and you could not fix it and you could also not make your payment to the seller and then the seller would have to foreclose and he'd be getting back a property without a furnace in it so yeah there are there are things that that can go wrong depending on who the investor is and how experienced they are and how ethical they are and how serious they are about you know doing what they say they're going to do but at that end, I mean, a seller who said to me, but but I don't want to deal with anything anymore. And we were talking about something like a seller held loan. I'd say, what is it you have to deal with? You have to deal with opening up your mailbox every week and pull or every month and pulling out a check from me and depositing it. Because I'm going to be paying the taxes. I'm going to be paying the insurance. I'm going to be dealing with the tenants. I'm going to be dealing with the rehabs and the and the repairs that come up. And if the roof goes bad, guess what? It's my roof. I own the house. So if that's really the objection you're getting, which is which is they don't want to deal with anything, I think you maybe are either approaching them with the wrong kind of seller financing and actually are involving them in continuing things with the property, or you are not coming back with, I, I don't understand what it is you think you're going to be involved with. This is all my problem. And, you know, let me say, even as even as I am saying this out loud, you know, you're, you're on the radio, anyone could be listening from a very experienced investor who knows exactly what I'm talking about to a newbie who's saying, well, it'd be great if I could get no interest financing from a seller, but realistically has no idea how to handle that property. I always feel a little bit in talking about seller financing at this sort of high level, like I'm handing a machine gun to an infant, you know, and (laughs) they're just going to do with it what they're going to do with it. Please, if you're going to 
talk to sellers about financing or you're going to do seller financing deals, have your skills in place. Have your plan in place. Know that you've evaluated it correctly. Know what your exit strategy is. Know that if everything goes wrong, you are still going to be able to make that payment that you promised to that seller. And the seller is never going to have to be involved in the deal ever again. That's my that's my shaking my finger at the world lesson for the day. That's it for us tonight on Real Life Real Estate Investing. Thanks so much to all the folks who participated by asking these wonderful questions. And we will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. <music>